as I imagine many of you have, I have over the course of the past couple of years enjoyed the TV show Ted Lasso. Any Ted Lasso fans? Yeah. It's about an American football coach who finds himself across the pond coaching what the rest of the world calls football. It's a good show. I'm not going to give you any spoilers. Don't worry. But I finished, I watched the last episode of season three this week. So sports is on my mind more than usual, which is not very much. <laughs> but I was thinking about this this week and for the sermon. What's the goal of a sports game? To win, right? But how do you win? If I got us all together and I said, okay, let's all go play a football game and win. And we're playing against a really good team. We're not going to win. It's the same thing with performing arts. If I got all of you together and I said, okay, perform an opera, ready, go. Something would happen. <laughs> a good opera, it would not be, right? Some things you can't pursue directly. What do you do in order to win or in order to give a good performance? You train a lot. With sports, I'm told, <laughs> you build muscle. You run drills, you eat the right kind of things. You, you work as a team, try to figure it out together. With performing arts, I know a little something about that. You practice and practice and practice, and there's basic exercises you do that will not show up here, but you gotta believe there's a foundation there of practicing over and over and over these basic exercises until it's second nature. So in other words, for every win, for every glorious sports game some of you watch, for every amazing performance other of us watch, there are thousands of hours of practice behind it, of laying the groundwork, practicing until your body just knows what to do when you're finally under the spotlight or when that game clock starts ticking. Now, we love the glory of the wins and the performance, don't we? But it is the hidden work of day in, day out, boring practice, training, preparation, blood, sweat, and tears that lays the groundwork for those glorious outcomes that we love. So it is with reconciliation. An enormous topic that the story of Joseph raises for us today Reconciliation, like an amazing performance or a sports win, cannot always be accomplished by just tackling it head on. Sometimes it can. But the greater the break in relationship, particularly when there's great harm done by one party to the other or by both parties to each other over a long time, the more harm, the more groundwork has to be laid before reconciliation is possible. Now, the good news is we can do that groundwork regardless of what the other party does or doesn't do. As Deacon Ethan reminded us last week, we can become the kind of people who are ready to be reconciled. How do we become that kind of people? How can we partner with the Holy Spirit to lay the groundwork, the foundation for reconciliation insofar as it depends on us so that we're ready if game time comes. The story of Joseph shows us the way. 
Now, the part of Joseph's story we have in front of us today is the glorious part. This is the true win-win, and it feels so good. It is so good. But we need to back up a bit. Because we have, last week we had the beginning of the story. Today we have the end of the story, and it didn't come out of nowhere. It came after years of twists and turns in which the Lord lay the groundwork for this reunion. Now, I would love to tell you the whole story of Joseph this morning, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to assume some basic biblical literacy. If you need to read it later, you can. I'm going to pick up after Joseph has been enslaved, after he spends time in prison, after Pharaoh raises him to command, second in command over the whole kingdom, after Joseph administers the heck out of Egypt for seven years of plenty, two years into the great famine, when his family back in Canaan who he hasn't seen for a very long time, when they've run out of food, suddenly imagine, you know, Joseph's up there maybe on a throne face to face with his brothers again. Ten of them anyway, because Benjamin is back home with dad. The brothers do not recognize the Egyptian official standing in front of them. Joseph is thoroughly Egyptianized by the time they see him again. You can imagine he has different facial hair, Certainly has a different name, an Egyptian wife. He is dressed Egyptianly, speaking Egyptian. Seth, is that right? Speaking Egyptian through a translator. The brothers show up. Joseph does not reveal himself right away. In fact, he treats them harshly. That's what the text says. Now, what is he doing? Is he just messing with them? Is he thinking about revenge? Well, imagine for a minute that your Joseph and your brother show up, but Benjamin isn't with them. The only other brother born from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So what question are you asking yourself? Is Benjamin really alive or did they kill him too? In other words, have they changed? Are they the type of people who are safe to reconcile with? So he tests them. First, he throws them in prison for three days. They interpret it as them getting what they deserve. Genesis 42, 21, the brothers are saying, surely we are being punished because of our brother, Joseph. Then Joseph tells them they can go, provided that they come back and bring Benjamin. Again, he wants to see, is Benjamin really alive? Not only that, he keeps one of them as his hostage. He takes Simeon out binds Simeon in front of them, just as they bound Joseph so many years before, and he puts Simeon in prison until they're going to come back. So again, you can imagine Joseph asking this question, will my brothers care enough about this brother to return, or will they abandon him like they did to me? Again, are they the type of people who are safe to reconcile with? Then they leave, and as you know, Joseph sneaks their silver back into their bags. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, they sold Joseph into slavery for 20 shekels, was the equivalent of two years' wages. They like their money. Will they take this money and run? Will they value Simeon more than the silver? Have they changed? The brothers go home, and they don't return right away. Imagine you're Simeon. The brothers wait until they're out of food again, and then... They are desperate. There is no food except in Egypt. And they have to tell their dad, we can't go back without Benjamin. Jacob doesn't want to let Benjamin go. 
Reuben tells his dad that if we don't bring Benjamin back, you can have the lives of my two sons instead. How noble. But then Judah speaks up. Judah tells Jacob that he will shoulder the responsibility for Benjamin. He puts his life on the line for Benjamin, even though Jacob has not changed his favoritism ways. So Judah's words are new. Is it real? Back to Egypt with Benjamin, double the silver, they don't want to get in trouble, plus gifts for the strange official on whom their very lives depend. Joseph hosts them for a feast and gives Benjamin double the portion of everyone else. I can imagine, again, Joseph being like, okay, I'm going to show him some unfair favor. Are they going to turn on him? And then there's one final test. As they head out for home, imagine they're relieved. They got their food. They have Benjamin. They have Simeon. Whew. But little do they know, Joseph has put the silver back into their bags again and taken his own precious silver cup and put it into Benjamin's bag. So they're on the road and suddenly surrounded by Egyptians accusing them of stealing this cup of the second most important man in Egypt. They're dragged back. They say, we're innocent. If you find it, whoever took it will become your slave. Strange Egyptian official. And as you know, they search the bags. It is in Benjamin's bag. Benjamin is condemned to slavery. And this is the moment on which the whole thing depends. Will they abandon Benjamin to slavery the way they did to Joseph? Or have they, after all these years, become the kind of people with whom it is safe to reconcile? Has the groundwork of reconciliation been laid in them? Judah speaks up again. Losing this son as well would destroy my father. I beg you, keep me here as your slave and let the boy return home. This is the point where Joseph begins weeping uncontrollably. So much so that someone, I heard someone laughing that the whole household knew about it. That's where we enter today. This is when Joseph finally reveals himself because he now knows they've changed. They are the kind of people who are ready for reconciliation. The groundwork has been laid. There is so much that could be said about this story. What I'm interested in this morning is, as I said, how can we partner with the Holy Spirit to become the kind of people who are ready and able to be reconciled? How can we lay the groundwork? How can we train for reconciliation regardless of the outcome, which is not in our control? How do we lay the groundwork? Three points, and none of them are going to be as complete as I or you probably wish. Let's treat it as the beginning of a conversation and not the end. So first, we lay the groundwork for reconciliation when we practice truth-telling, repentance, and forgiveness, all three together. 
truth-telling, repentance, and forgiveness. All three of those things are necessary prerequisites for reconciliation. Kind of like if you were in a college and reconciliation would be a like graduate level course. You'd have to take truth-telling, repentance, and forgiveness before you were allowed to take reconciliation. I know we're beginning classes again, so maybe that will resonate. The good news is all three of those classes, all three of those things are again entirely separate from what the other party does or doesn't do. Truth-telling, repentance, forgiveness. There is no possibility for reconciliation without truth, without willingness to tell the truth, first about ourselves, and then about what we have experienced from the other party. How is it that we have this story of Joseph in the first place? with all its gory details. Joseph and the brothers told it. They passed this story down, generation after generation after generation, and not just, hey, we reconciled, but look at all the stuff that had to happen. Look at all the truth before this beautiful thing. Even how Joseph identifies himself when he finally makes himself known to his brothers refers to what they did. Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. He says that not to make them feel bad, but because that's the story. That's his story now. It just is. That is the thing that needs mending because reconciliation is about mending. You don't need reconciliation if there's been no break or shattering. For there to be mending, weaving together again, we have to be honest about what it is that needs mending. And sometimes this is exactly where we get stuck. We can't agree about what's true or who's responsible. Maybe there's something we're not saying, we're afraid to say it, or we just don't see it yet. We can pray that the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. That is part of what the Holy Spirit does. Maybe we even need to start there. There is no reconciliation without truth. And there's no reconciliation without repentance either. Imagine that when Joseph reveals himself, guys, it's me. The brothers have responded, you deserved it. It's your fault. You provoked us. You, you. That would have completely shut down any possibility for uh, mending. Now, Joseph was clearly not a perfect brother. I imagine he was pretty annoying. But that does not mean that he deserved what they did to him. They and they alone were responsible and their owning of that, and their recognition of how horribly it impacted their father. He didn't change, but they recognized how much what they did hurt him. That, plus the clear evidence that they had changed, because repentance is not just feeling bad, it's changing so you don't do the harmful thing anymore. All of that was needed in order for this reconciliation to be possible. We must be able to ask of ourselves, each one of us, am I the type of person with whom it would be safe to reconcile? Am I the type of person with whom it would be safe to reconcile? So that's truth-telling and repentance. But forgiveness, too, is essential to reconciliation. Fundamentally, forgiveness means we release our desire to make the person who hurt us pay for what they did, to make them hurt like we hurt. 
to get ours. That is a choice we face when we've been hurt. That is a choice we could make. Forgiveness means we look at that choice and we say no. We take our hurt and our rage to God. The Psalms do this all the time. Vengeance belongs to him. Forgiveness does not mean that we ignore something harmful done to us or never speak of it. In fact, it requires telling the truth. It requires saying something was done to me. There is something to forgive. We can only forgive to the extent that we have been honest, willing to face the depths and the harm and the poison of what we experienced. If we don't face that, it's not forgiveness, it's denial. It'd be like if our sewer backs up, we don't fix it, we just put an air freshener in there. If we don't face it, we can only forgive what we have faced. Joseph shows forgiveness when he doesn't just completely obliterate his brothers when they show up in front of him. Have you thought about that? He had second most power in all of Egypt. He could have just had them killed or not given them food. He does not take vengeance. That is forgiveness. It's a little murky because he does do some things that make them squirm, right? Again, I think he's testing the waters to see and helping them remember the pain of what they've done. When they feel that pain, will they blame others? Will they turn on each other? Joseph might say, well, I've forgiven the past. What about now? Joseph shows forgiveness when he tests the waters to see if reconciliation is a possibility. He doesn't discount it. He tests it out. But it is the combo of all three of these, truth, repentance, forgiveness, all three that opens the door fully to reconciliation. Second, because yes, that was one big point. Second, we lay the groundwork for reconciliation when we prioritize the restoration of those injured. Sometimes both sides are injured equally, but it is very important for us to remember that that is not always true. For example, in Joseph's case, his brothers fell him into slavery. There is not equal responsibility there. When the responsibility for the break in relationship is one-sided as it is for Joseph, as it is when there is abuse of any kind, the kinds of groundwork needed for reconciliation to occur, the type of groundwork is not equal. If the responsibility isn't equal, the groundwork is not equal. Joseph's brothers become the kind of people who are able to be reconciled through suffering and particularly suffering their own conscience and the impact of their own actions and then repenting, being the kind of people who don't cause that harm again. Joseph's word of comfort to them comes after their repentance, not before. Now, just Joseph suffers too, that's for sure. But the groundwork for Joseph to become the kind of people who is able to be reconciled, the kind of person who is able to be reconciled is not repentance, it is restoration. 
becoming the kind of person who is whole enough to reconcile. Author and theologian Chiniqua Walker Barnes, in her amazing exploration of racial reconciliation in the book, I Bring the Voices of My People, she reminds us that reconciliation is about restoring us to right relationship with God, with humanity creation, and with ourselves. And that for those who experience crushing oppression of things such as racism and abuse, reconciliation involves healing the damage that has been done to us. There are some things that cause so much damage inside, so much harm, so much pain, so much shattering, that there is no possibility, possibility for reconciliation until that is mended. That is God's work too. Becoming the kind of person who is whole enough for there to be a possibility of reconciling. Joseph experienced tremendous restoration that was the groundwork for him. He was empowered and affirmed for his gifts even in prison. The Lord blessed him, literally raised him from the pit. When he faces his brothers again, he's not dependent on them at all. He has a life. He has been able to make meaning about what he has suffered because he's seen the Lord's goodness on the other side of it. He can see the full trajectory of what the Lord has done for him and through him. Joseph is able to reconcile because he's already safe from further harm from them. He's integrated how they treated him into his story in a way that makes sense and provides meaning. He's at peace with his story and he is now whole or whole enough. Sometimes those of us who know the power and beauty of reconciliation can, with the best of intentions, do harm to those injured by pushing them to reconcile with the one who harmed them. Now, how do I know? Because I've done it. I have learned this lesson the hard way. And I've had to learn to make it right. If you want to help someone who's been mistreated, don't start with reconciliation. Start with the pain. Stay with them there for as long as it takes. Tell them of their worth as a child of God. Support them as they seek to do the hard work of becoming whole again, perhaps even with time whole enough to reconcile. As we prioritize restoration of those injured, even when it's us, we lay the groundwork for reconciliation. And last, we lay the groundwork for reconciliation when we release our timetables for it. Reconciliation is God's work and God will do it in God's time. We wanna to get to the end of the story. Right now at night, when I read to my kids, if we don't have time to finish the story, they hate it. <laughs> the middle is uncomfortable. At least in a book, you can skip to the end to see what happens. Now we can see the ultimate ending of our story, of course. The discomfort along the way is awful. How many years pass between when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery and when they reconcile? Let's do the math. The Bible tells us Joseph is 17 at the beginning of the story. 
He is 30 when he enters Pharaoh's service, gets out of prison. Then there's seven years of plenty, and his brothers show up two years into the famine. That's 22 years by my count. 22 years of God working restoration in Joseph's life and repentance in the lives of his brothers. 22 years of preparation and groundwork that led to that moment of reconciliation. It took Joseph 22 years, maybe a little less, to become the kind of person who was whole enough to reconcile. 22 years, maybe a little less, for the brothers to become the kinds of people who were safe enough to reconcile with. Reconciliation and forgiveness too, for that matter, takes time. When we try to rush it, we have good intentions. We wanna be faithful to the words of Jesus. That is a good thing. But we can inadvertently short circuit the deeper work God wants to do. It's not about not reconciling, but letting God do the deep work, the deepest work he wants to do. And we don't always know what that is. God is about the business of reconciling all things to himself in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is why we are here. We have been reconciled to Christ. We are in the business of reconciliation. God will do it. He will do it. Our part of that is to be faithful with our training. Lay the groundwork. Be patient with the discomfort. And when it's time for game time, if that time goes, we go. I thought I had a better ending for this sermon. But what I really want to do is have us take a moment to reflect on what we've heard, a moment to just be quiet and to ask the spirit, because I've said a lot, Ask the Spirit, where are you prompting my heart? Because the temptation whenever we talk about things like reconciliation, forgiveness, hard things, is to think of somebody else who needs to hear it. It's a temptation to preach that way too, let me tell you. But the Spirit is speaking to you and to me. And what does the Spirit want to say? Does the Spirit want to speak to you something about truth-telling or repentance or forgiveness? Does the Spirit want to speak to you about prioritizing restoration of yourself or someone else? Do you need to wrestle with God about God's timing? Or, I was going to say yell at him, quiet internal yelling, at the discomfort of living in the middle. Do you just want to groan? Holy Spirit, come. You are reconciling all things. Please speak to us right now about how we are to be faithful here, living in the middle of the story. Bring us your conviction, bring us your peace, bring us your comfort, anything, anything and everything, Lord, we are open to you. Let us pray silently for a minute. Come, Holy Spirit.
Oh, Father, we groan with creation at the things that are not the way they ought to be and our own powerlessness over that. We pray that in our Redeemer community, those seated right here, those joining online, we would be faithful to do the groundwork so that we are people who are whole enough to reconcile and safe enough to reconcile with. May we partner with you and never get in the way, never get in the way of what you desire to do through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.